Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome along to Football Digest Daily with me, Ned Keating. Joining me this morning are David Rivers of the Daily Star and Nathan Ridley of the Daily Mirror as we chew over all the action from another busy Premier League weekend. Uh, gentlemen, it, it was certainly an exciting one. Plenty of goals for us to get through, plenty of talking points as well. Um, but David, we're going to start with the first game of the weekend. Uh, Liverpool putting five past Claudia Ranieri's Watford. Um, I was speaking to my dad yesterday. He's a, he's a big Liverpool fan. Um, and he was saying kind of how he'd seen the game and, and that it looked like a training exercise almost for Liverpool. And, and he kind of said that that was exemplified in the fact that Mo Salah, Roberto Firmino, Sadio Mane weren't taken off with an idea of, of Tuesday in mind. Um, you know, it really wasn't an easy game for Liverpool, but they made it look so easy. I know Watford weren't great and, and Claudio Ranieri looks like he's got a massive job on his hands, but but Liverpool really looked like they could definitely go the distance in this title race because of the way that they were able to dispatch these teams. This is what a champion side does, isn't it? They make the easy games look ridiculously easy. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people kind of build Liverpool out for silverware in the summer. And I, I feel like there's this feeling now as to people kind of scratching their heads as, heads as to why, because they, they looked absolutely fantastic. And they look to me like they are playing at a level similar to the level they were playing at when they won the league, um, except with Mo Salah looking even better than he did back then. Um, and also the, the thing that strikes me about this Liverpool side too is not only was that a training match, but they did it with, you know, depth on the substitutes bench. Uh, I think Diego Jota was rested um, and Firmino, who was in his place, scores a hat-trick, you know. Um, I think Virgil van Dijk uh, looks to me like he is dismissing any fears that he wouldn't be the same player anymore. Um, we get to clean sheet and he just looks he just looks great again. Henderson looked great, I thought. Um, and I, I just think I just think they've got depth all over the pitch. I mean, they're, they're not the, the reason I think they're so far ahead of Man United would would be that they uh, they don't have any gaping holes in the team. Like if you, if you looked at Watford uh, that game, there was no weak points in there at all. Uh, they just swept them away. And you know, I, I suppose you could argue if Trent Alexander-Arnold gets injured, you've got Milner who comes in who had a nightmare against Phil Foden, but. You know that that no way near as big of a problem as you know Man United without a class defensive midfielder. So I just thought they showed to me in that game that they look like they're at their level they were when they won the league and possibly even better with more depth. Nathan, you're a Man United fan, so this is going to be a little bit difficult for you to to, to try to talk up Liverpool too much. I, I accept that. Um, but Mohamed Salah, he he really got the, the headlines from Saturday. I know we, we spoke about Roberto Firmino getting the hat-trick, Sadio Mane uh, reaching 100 Premier League goals, which is exceptional for the fact that he's not scored a penalty as well. It's, it's unbelievable for him to do that. But Mo Salah gets the headlines again because he's... Well, it was just another brilliant performance from him. Um, you know, Jurgen Klopp spoke after the game saying how he thought he was the best player in the world right now. I mean, yourself being a Man United fan, Nathan, I'd like, I'd, I'm, I'm guessing that you probably still believe that Cristiano Ronaldo is the best player in the world. But but where does Salah, for you, rank in this, this rating? You know, Obviously, we've still got Ronaldo, we've still got Messi. You look at Mbappe, Neymar, they're doing great stuff at PSG as well. But but where does Mo Salah sit for you in the, in the greats of the game right now? Yeah, like you said, obviously Jurgen Klopp believes he's the best and obviously that's sort of expected. But 
Messi's slow start at PSG, you know, Lewandowski, the strikers, like, you know, you see them scoring goals, but there is something special about the type of player Messi and Salah are, the, the, you know, the way you watch them score goals. And I think at this moment in time on form, he's certainly the best in the world. You know, it seems for a few years that despite the Premier League being considered the best league in the world, it's actually rare that we've said the best player in the world is playing here. And I think for the first time in a long time, at the moment at least, we can comfortably say that Salah is, you know, things change. And of course, it's been a, such a hectic year with football. Players could be off form. You know, p- people seem to have forgot about Mbappe a little bit. Obviously, Ronaldo will have something to say, but he is sort of in that goal scorer mould. So, you know, the way you watch Salah, the performance against City and Watford, you know, you certainly can't accuse him of, sort of not doing it in the big games, but then also the consistency. I mean, it is the full package in terms of what you want. And I think it just speaks to, you know, Salah probably performed as an individual as well as he could last season. He was absolutely exceptional last season, despite Liverpool being so weak. But now Liverpool, well, so they still got third, but now Liverpool are back up to that level. As David said, they do, you know, it's glimmers of that team that won the title and the year before pushed City. Salah's now been given the platform that he can absolutely destroy teams because Liverpool are, are dominating and he, you know, he's the icing on the cake, but he has taken over that mantle, you know, of a talisman. And I think the best thing about Liverpool and in a way City is that they've never been one-man teams. That's all, you know, they've been such complete squads. Um, obviously, they have key players. Of course, we saw that with Liverpool and even with City when they've lost defenders or lost De Bruyne uh, and even without striker. But, Salah now, it seems like he is the standout. Of course, Van Dijk sort of hasn't been tested fully. Defenders tend to impress over a full season. But the way Salah started, I think you have to say he's the best in the world at the moment. And it, it comes in, in poor timing with, I suppose, the Ballon d'Or and things like that. But, you know, the way he's playing for Liverpool and Egypt, I always think that, you know, like with Lewandowski for Poland, Salah plays with the national team that, it's a lot of work and people will say, well, they'll just pass to him all the time. It is a heck of a lot of work when he's playing against teams that really just hope to stop him. And it's becoming the same with Liverpool where other players are benefiting from people concentrating on Salah. You know, he got one goal, Firmino got three, but Salah stole the show. Uh, as ever, uh, from our lovely viewers, we're getting plenty of comments in, so please uh, send them in as you can as well. Um, David Nathan, we've got Stoneboy seems to uh, agree with both of you that Liverpool are definitely going to be in the title race this year, but it's the second part of this, and we've had several comments already on this, uh, about believing that Oli's time is up at Manchester United. Uh, we've also had similar comments from Shepard Naduva and Roland S. Jimmy you know, saying the same thing. And Nathan, as as the Man United fan on this podcast this morning, I think it's probably right to come to you first on this. Uh, a 4-2 defeat at Leicester at the weekend. But it's also it's almost a manner of it, really, isn't it? That that kind of caused the most concern. The kind of head seemed to drop quite a lot um, when when Leicester took the lead for the second time. Um, yeah, Jamie Vardy three two, and it, it it just didn't seem like a really good performance. No one seemed that interested, you know. I know obviously Man United took the lead, Mason Greenwood with a fantastic goal, but but there's question marks over Pogba's performance, over Ronaldo's performance after the game, and obviously then there's question marks about the manager as well. It's not been the best of starts for Man United this year. A lot was expected of them with that transfer window that they had signing Ronaldo, signing Varane, signing Sancho, you know, all these great players that were expected to come in and lift them to that next level. It's not happened so far. Is this the most pressure that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has been under so far at Man United? I would say it probably is. I think you can probably recall two other times where he's been sort of under real pressure. I think midway through his first full season before Fernandes arrived, 
there were some really drab performances. And, and actually then, it was only after the lockdown period when they went on that great run that they managed to salvage a top-four finish and the season looked somewhat positive with decent cup runs as well. And last season, the start, the 6-1 versus Tottenham, it was a really poor start, but there were sort of you know reasons behind that. And it did prove that United were much better last season. But now with the signings, you know, once you've got past eight games, you're not looking at the start of the season. You 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 know you're well into the thick of it. And going out of the League Cup, I think at the time, maybe the ninety minutes people weren't too stung. But going out of that competition was really dropping the ball. You know, the Champions League is going to be very difficult. Atalanta have the ability to absolutely the you know that game could be five five. The way both teams play, so open. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, and as Gary Neville pointed out um, on Sky, a lot of people picked up on it that they have played these better teams in recent weeks with plans, and unfortunately, they seem to be tactically superior to United. United's players have again fallen into what happened with Van Gaal and Mourinho. They, they just seem to have they seem to have lost some sort of drive and energy that it seems that every two years it seems to be sucked out of them. And you know that in certain games, and, and this is the thing that I think will keep Solskjaer in the job for now is that. They've got some big games coming up and it wouldn't surprise anyone, I don't think, if against Liverpool, Old Trafford on the weekend, massive pressure, they came up with something because the likes of Pogba, the likes of Fernandes, you know, if Iran can come back. I mean, look at the way De Gea sort of bounced back this season. The pedigree and the, the players' CVs, they are players that want to turn up in the bigger games. And it is against, the, I suppose, the perceived games where I wonder if they just turn up where Man United you know, will win like a Leicester and things like that and the don't and yeah there were a lot of poor individual performances and fingers can be pointed at the manager but it's just this it's the same feeling towards the end of Mourinho's time and Van Gaal's time which is probably the most concerning thing but Solskjaer will hope that he's done enough behind the scenes and things like that that it will be different this time and it'll be a blip but the pressure's certainly on and at a club like Man United you can't have too long of a blip David, if Man United were to dispense for Gunnar Solskjaer's services, um, you look at the managers that are out there at the minute and who might be available, who might want the job, who would be the best fit, in your opinion, as a, as a kind of outsider, you know, no kind of real links to United, not a fan of the club, but as an outsider, who might be the best option for them going forward? Um, I think Antonio Conte would, would, would be the number one choice, really, um, because I think he basically gives them the polar opposite of everything Nathan just said was was lacking really um I thought you know um Danny Murphy made an excellent point on match of the day yesterday about how uh, they seem to be the only club that play uh, without a block of three defensive midfielders behind an attacking three uh, apart from them Man City but Man City press harder than than anyone else and Man United have Ronaldo up front who despite his brilliance doesn't do that so I, I think that that was pretty damning. Um, but yeah, I think Conte is the only outstanding candidate for Manchester United because I think A, A is available <laughs> at this time of the season. And B, I just, you know, fr- from the re- reports we've read, there's, you know, he seems to be hinting that, you know, there's jobs that he isn't interested in because he's holding out for a job like that. Um, and of course, it, you know, he's won the league 
uh, which which Solskjaer hasn't done. So he he would be my prime candidate. I wonder if he's kind of thinking along the lines of Mourinho, almost having a point to prove back in England after that Chelsea stint and go, you know, it's almost like you can kind of symmetrical in a way. I know they hate each other and they can't get on with it, but but um, yeah, it is quite funny in that respect. I, I just think as well, he's, he's quite like, you know, <laughs> his Chelsea side were, were pretty pretty tough, pretty mean. I mean, I, 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 Paul Pogba's comments after the game, I, I thought were incredible. Really, I mean, he said uh, something needs to change, which I think is an amazing thing to say when your boss is under pressure. <laughs> and uh, he also he accused Manchester United of lacking arrogance, which I, I thought was an incredible thing to say. I mean, Manchester United should never ever be a club accused of lacking arrogance i mean in a, in a good way that that is what defined manchester united's success so I, I just kind of think you know conti would would give them that 100 percent um nathan just carrying on from those proper comments there um i think i saw a lot of united fans suggesting on saturday night that after those comments about something needs to change they were suggesting that Pogba himself won't be the person that, that needs to change, potentially dropping him out of the squad. Um, you know, there's a you know, we've touched on this several times already this morning, but the quality in that squad that they've got is littered with star players. So is there perhaps a chance that maybe that might be the change that, that Solskjaer needs to do to, to drop one of his bigger names, to drop a, a Pogba or Ronaldo and kind of say, I am the boss, I am the manager? Because I think as well on this podcast last week, we were talking about whether or not there's a power struggle at United between Solskjaer, between Ronaldo and, and possibly Sir Alex as well with his comments ahead of the, the Everton game. And if he was to drop one of his star players, it, it really does remind him who actually is the boss. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, you know, the, the contract situation doesn't help as well because there's the looming fact that if you decide to sort of prioritise Pogba, then he may leave. So you can fully understand, you know, this sort of indecision with him. But there needs to come to a point, like we said, it's beyond the start of the season. I, I really think that, I think it would be fair to drop him. I think Solskjaer, for as much criticism as he gets for playing McTominay and Fred, I, I don't think they'll be as open at a game like Leicester. You know, you might draw the game and you might not score two goals, but I honestly think the record in those type of games, and I'll be, I can guarantee they'll be on the team sheet against Liverpool, those two, and Matic and Pogba, arguably both of them won't. And I think, you know, United played in sort of spells and going on good runs and things like that. They seem to have always found an 11, and last season it was with Pogba on the left and Cavani up front. But there's never been sort of an element of rotation and a long run where the eleven can look quite different and the performances can still be the same. So if Pogba now isn't going to be able to play in that left-wing berth with Sancho, Rashford, Martial seems to have some faith left in him, Ronaldo potentially playing out there because Cavani's been faultless, you know, it, it will be very difficult to keep Cavani out constantly. I think it would be fair. And I think, you know, maybe if Solskjaer expected Pogba to go last summer, that was, you know, the reason behind the Van der Beek signing. Maybe he could have offered something different in midfield, um, maybe a bit more diligent on the ball. You know, Pogba's absolutely wonderful going forward. And I think when he has that license to roam, he's unstoppable. There's so many, he's got so many attributes that are just unplayable, uh, you know, against some of the Premier League's best struggle to deal with him. We've seen that in some of his performances, but I don't think, I think it would be a team decision to drop him. I think there's, you know, a lot of good teams have had to drop a star player to work. You know, it's, it's not uncommon. And as always, Nobody remembers that star player who was dropped. People just remember that team. And like the Man United teams of old, when Varon came in, Ferguson tried to shoehorn him in, realised it's not working, reverted back to what he knows best. And United won titles with players who you'd say was less glamorous. Uh, you know, Owen Hargreaves won the Champions League, but Varon, you know, didn't help deliver something like that. So 
I think the situation now has to come where Solskjaer has to be selfish, has to realise I'm going to pick a team, you know, that I can trust. I think he knows he can trust Fernandez, knows he can trust Fred McTominay, Greenwood's impressing and things like that. And that's not to say Pogba hasn't performed because he has, and he has, you know, under Solskjaer, I think he's been better than he was under Mourinho. He's had longer time, but he's also had injuries. But I don't think he'd be wrong to drop him. Although, you know, there's the argument that, well, could he play on the left and would he be more productive than a Rashford and things like that? So it's a decision with, you know, lots of lots of lots of moving parts, the club, the contract, the, the player himself and, and the dressing room. So it is a big decision. And then with Pogba saying, you know, the mentality wasn't right, things like that, you know, that comes from the players and it's it, it was massively concerning what he said, I thought. I thought it was good that, you know, he was the one to come out, seem to front up. Usually it's a man like Maguire or someone like that, but no, he it was concerning, and I think he he quite well summarises the sort of issues at United because he, he isn't he isn't bad, but in the way that he may not fit, and that's been the problem at United for a long time. Man United may have been hoping to be involved in the title race this season, but at the minute they look a, a little bit too far back from that for their liking. However, uh, Chelsea and Man City both look to be uh, among those uh, looking for the title this season, David. Along with Liverpool winning as well, they also picked up victories. Do we have a genuine three-horse title race this season, do you think? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I think um, those three are just clearly playing at a higher level than just about anyone else at the moment. I think. Um, all three of them have got the best goalkeepers in the league at the moment. I, th- I think we saw that with Chelsea v, v Brentford yesterday. Um, and yeah, I, I just think they've they've basically got the balance of the side right in a way that, you know, Manchester United j- just simply don't. Um, none of them seem to be exposed in any areas too much. For, I, I mean, I know, I know that Manchester City, you know, are essentially playing without a striker, but that doesn't seem to be anywhere near as big a problem as, you know, say Manchester United without enough defensive midfielders or, you know, Man United with their two centre-halves injured. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it is a, a three-horse race. Um, and, you know, tactically, I think all three of those managers are just streets ahead of everyone else with the, with the CVs to prove it, um, Champions Leagues and Premier League titles between them. So, yeah, I, I would be really amazed if any of those three dropped out of the top three by the end of the season. Nathan, just, just sticking with Chelsea a bit here. Um, our, our lovely producer who knocked up the running order, I'm not sure I, I, I totally agree with this point here where he said that Chelsea didn't look overly convincing. Um, you know, Brentford, I thought, were brilliant. But what struck me on Saturday more so was the fact that Chelsea were without several players, um, you know, having to bring in Milang Saar, who looked like he'd been there forever. You know, brilliant first Premier League start for him. Um, and he's one of the, there's quite an interesting group of players, I think, at Chelsea. You know, he's a part of it. Ruben Loftus-Cheek uh, and Ross Barkley as well. They looked like they were a group of players who weren't loved by Tuchel in the summer, could have moved on in the summer, gone elsewhere. But they've stuck around. And now when they're getting their opportunities and their chances, albeit if it's off the substitutes bench or if it's stepping in for games when others are unfit, they seem to be stepping up to the plate. And that could be the difference come the end of the season. When, you, when we have talked about depth and Liverpool do have depth in some places but not in all places when you look at that Chelsea squad and there are these players who can step in and and look like they belong at that level in that team even if they've not played for several weeks that must be a worry for the other teams around them in this title race yes certainly and I think the point about those fringe players that could have easily moved on 
you know, it just made me think of Divock Origi or a player like Nathan Ake or Fabian, you know, Fabian Delph was probably a great example for City, you know, and even Milner at Liverpool. If you were being cutthroat with your squad, you could say, well, I wouldn't mind if they'd leave or things like that. But, you know, possibly personalities in the dressing room, how they are on the training ground with with other te- with other teammates. And when you've got a winning environment and everyone's in a good mood and everyone's bouncing into training every day and on a match day when someone like Asar is coming along and it's such a good atmosphere for them to come into, they can thrive. You know, in another world, Chelsea are on a poor run, he comes in and we know that he could, you know, he maybe has a bad game and everybody says, oh, you know, he's not fit enough for Chelsea, etc. But when you can walk into a team like that and have the confidence and, you know, know that you've got a great goalkeeper behind you, you know, he played behind Ben Chilwell as well, got the goal. And, you know, Chilwell himself has come back into it. It was only, if you, you know, he missed out on the England squad. Um, but all of a sudden, Max Alonso takes a little bit of a dip and now Chilwell's back in. And I think, you know, that is always a testament to the best teams when the players that, you could say play for other teams might not stand out and you would say, well, that you know, they're not at that level for them as an individual. When those players come in, it's impressive and that depth and and again, it's all you know, it's down to the coach and down to the staff behind the scenes. Those squads are, you know, you want to be playing above more than the sum of your parts. I think Chelsea probably are, although spending a hundred million on Lukaku puts them in a sort of different echelon. Liverpool, of course, have spent less, and I think people would argue they're still more than the sum of their parts in terms of a whole squad. And I think Man City, you know, although the spend and things like that, but the coaching is that good. And as David said, these three managers, Champions Leagues, you know, could, they could all have a Premier League winners' medal by May if Chelsea go and win it. I think that's what makes it superior, and I definitely think it's a three-horse race. And and Chelsea, the you know Chelsea, the ones who've made inroads. It's, it has been a long time since. Liverpool and Manchester City were the best, probably the start of 2018. United couldn't do it. Tottenham had a flutter um, and Chelsea have managed to. So, you know, f- fair play to them and, and full credit to Tuckle for what he's done. Um, but it, as ever, it is the, the two-year Chelsea cycle where all of a sudden they look like they could take on anyone. But I don't think anyone would be surprised if we, this time next year, all of a sudden Tuckle's getting sacked and he's fell out with everyone and things like that. Because similar happened at PSG and Dortmund, his sort of character. but. For now, they've got to be riding this wave. Might be a three-horse race this season, but Newcastle United will be hoping in the years to come they can make it into definitely at least a four-horse title race, if not run away with it themselves. Um, but David, the new era, we were all speaking about it last week. Um, it didn't get off to the best of starts uh, with the result yesterday against Tottenham. I have to say, as a Spurs fan, as soon as we went behind after about two minutes, I kind of thought that the writing was on the wall. I knew how this one would go. But bizarrely, they were just unable to capitalise on that. You know, They had the whole crowd behind them. You go ahead after two minutes with your first attack of the game. Callum Wilson showing why, at least I believe, he might be one of the players to stick around in, the new, in this Newcastle side when they do overall it, you know, proving that if you give him good ball, he can score goals. Great movement for that. But it just seemed to drop off after that. As soon as Spurs got that, that first goal back, it only looked like there was only ever going to be one team that would go on and win it. The, the, kind of, the weight and the pressure of expectation almost looked to, to bog Newcastle down after Spurs equalised. Um, yeah, I mean... Thing is, Ned, I I found the whole thing quite predictable, really. I think, you know, there was this huge sense of optimism going into the game. And that certainly carried them through the first 15 minutes of the game. You know, tackles flying in and there was energy behind them. And obviously they took the lead. But I think it really, really quickly turned into a reality check. And I thought it basically was uh, a 75-minute reality check, really. I think 
My biggest takeaway from the game, I thought, was that this is still a club in a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, with a group of players that haven't been playing well under a very unpopular manager. But more than that, it, it really uh, hammered home the point for me that this is a really difficult sell for uh, players in January and the new manager before that. It might not be in 18 months and two years when the best players in the world want to join them, potentially. But there's such a difference between that and players wanting to join them now. And it just looks like a really difficult case to make right now. I mean, some of the names they're being linked with, they're in stable jobs. You know, like, you know, Steven Gerrard, it ranges. Would he really want to swap his position for a relegation fight? He'd want to wait and see, well, you know, <laughs> maybe if you do become this club that everyone's saying I'll join. Uh, exactly the same thing with Graham Potter. You know, his Brighton side are punching above their weight at the moment. Why would he want to leave at that point? Um, and even players, even managers, sorry, who, who aren't a club, someone like Frank Lampard, you know, it, you know, he's had his fingers burned at Chelsea. He doesn't want to walk into a situation like that. Um, and, and another point I'd make as well is I, I kind of wonder if they're in a position where um, they what they need is a manager who is just going to man the fort until <laughs> it becomes a more attractive proposition in a, a year to 18 months to two years' time. And, you know, managers are not stupid. They're, they're not going to want that. You know, they're going to want to know, well, if I come in, I want to know that I'm going to be here for the long haul and I'm going to be the one spending 200 million on Mbappe and, and Holland. Um, and I don't think Newcastle will be able to give that kind of assurances to anyone coming in right now. Um, so yeah, my, my takeaway from that was, I think everybody knew it certainly wouldn't be an overnight thing, but I think that was um, a serious reality check as to just how hard January is going to be and, and how careful they have to be. Yeah, Dan, David brings up a great point there, Nathan, about the whole January window for Newcastle and, and kind of something that I think we all understand is that when you do have a, a new owners that come in and want to splash the cash, but you're in a relegation battle, you might end up getting players that are there for the wrong reasons. They're there for maybe the money and not for the cause. And, and then obviously that breeds a, a bad atmosphere around the squad. But, but one thing that I thought was interesting, um, and I don't normally agree with Danny Murphy as a pundit, I must say, but match of day two again last night, he was talking about Newcastle and he said, that they need to make the loan market work. And I thought he's got that spot on there because, Nathan, I don't know about you, but for me at least anyway, that would allow them then to definitely get in the kind of players with that attitude, that mentality, that, that they want to do well for the club and for themselves as well because obviously yeah, there's a reason why they're available on, on loan and they're not you know, playing for their clubs at the minute and they'll want to go and further their career. So maybe that might be where Newcastle can find some joy in January to try and rejig their squad and then obviously they don't have that whole if it did go wrong and they were to to get relegated they, they don't have those contractual obligations and multi-million pound contracts in the championship yeah exactly I mean you bring up a good point here Ned I think you know my mind sort of goes to Sam Allardyce at West Brom last year he came in at a similar time brings in a player like Okay Kuslu who was absolutely excellent and I think he really although they didn't survive in the end I think he was the type of player and experienced someone who understands the initial move as a short-term thing um, can be beneficial. And, you know, there are, you know, great young players who they could get out there and snatch someone like Usam Awa from Leon, players like that, that realistically they could get. But, you know, they need to walk before they can run. And I think that is, you know, 
they had plenty of time, the new owners, to sort of weigh up whether they were going to sack Bruce immediately, you know, because they knew it wasn't just they were told on that Thursday, oh, you're in charge now. They knew and they'll have had plans, but, you know, and they could have just had a caretaker in for that Tottenham game. Of course, a 1,000th match, home ground, um, you know, and rocking and Bruce being a Newcastle fan might have affected that. But I think a firefighting manager, like David said, they're not going to sort of want to walk in and say, you're coming in until May to do the hard work and then someone else is getting the cash. There's been talk of all sorts. I think it, it, it's a good point with Lampard or an Eddie Howe. They don't want to be burned. I think Gerard and Potter will have their eyes on probably bigger jobs um, You know, than, than Newcastle. Although it is a big job and the, the rewards are so great, the immediate risk is big. Someone like Lucien Favre, who's touted, who's not been in work since he left Dortmund. But I think... Um, he has he didn't get on with Alan St. Maximan at Nice. <laughs> so I'm not sure he's gonna get in. But yeah, it's a strange one. You know, uh, Marcelino, Spanish manager, I think he could come in and help them. Uh, or someone, a good defensive coach. I mean, Rafa Benitez would have been the most ideal person I, I can think of. Unfortunately, that's not gonna happen. And Everton have done the same. Everton have got money. To, they can splash the cash, but they've realized we need a Benitez to get us stable. You know, we need to sort of build slowly and I think Newcastle would benefit from doing that uh, uh, you know they were linked with two sort of two signings initially upon the announcement I think it was Lingard and Tarkovsky and I totally agree for the next two years those two players are very good Premier League players you know there's not many players who can play as many who racked up as many games as them as consistently you know these these two players that have been in the Premier League for a long time you know they've not pulled up trees and made team of the year and things like that but for Newcastle they will perform and I think you know, you look at Benitez with Everton, Andros Townsend, Damari Gray, these people, experience of the league, know how to, you know, sort of know how know how the game works and things like that long term. Um, it can be massively beneficial. I think if Newcastle use players like that and they are the players that they could get in the loan market, ones who aren't getting as many games, you know, at Christmas and things like that when the January window opens, I think that would be wise. And I think the manager decision is very, very difficult. And, and I think the Probably attracting players, you know, will be sort of easy. But it, like you said, it's attracting the right players. So it is quite the predicament they're in. But I think they will be confident with the starts that Burnley and Norwich have had, and even Leeds and Southampton haven't been great. You know, there will be a chance that they can survive if they if they just make a few good decisions. And Jurgen Klopp said they have enough money to make a few bad decisions. But of course, if you go down, it's very hard to come back up. Aston Villa found that. Gents, I'm sure we'll both be watching uh, how it unfolds at Newcastle quite interestingly and, and kind of seeing how it goes for the next few uh, months and, and for the rest of the season as well. Um, but for now, chaps, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, thank you so much as well for everyone who's been listening along as well. Um, sure to be plenty more uh, stories and, and whatnot coming up in the next uh, few days before the start of the next Premier League weekend this weekend. Uh, but for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.